you open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Joel? The book of Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 901. Any uh, kindergarten and first graders who'd like to go to children's church are welcome to go to children's church if they'd like. They can find that in the uh, back in the foyer. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, page 901. If you're reading from one of the Bibles in the Purak. Well, I'm going to admit something that's kind of embarrassing for me as a uh, pastor and preacher to admit. But if, if I'm honest, I have to admit that there are parts of the Bible that I do not embrace or obey the same way that I embrace and obey other parts of the Bible. I have to admit that when it comes to God's Word speaking to me, unfortunately, I am a selective listener. And I think we all, as sinful human beings, are selective listeners. We, we listen to what we want to hear and we kind of tune out things that we don't want to hear. Uh, every Christian this side of heaven uh, is to some degree or another a cafeteria Christian. We look at the Bible like a buffet and we, we kind of pick things that fit our you know, nice, small theological formulations and things that fit our comfortable lifestyles. And there are other things that we pass over, like picky little children who won't eat things because, well, they've never eaten it before, therefore it must be gross. And so we, we simply kind of avoid things like that. And this morning I want to look at with you um, an element of biblical teaching, an aspect of biblical life and practice that I think especially for us in the American church is one of those things that we tend to selectively tune out, that we selectively not listen to and not put into practice. I, I want to think with you this morning about, sort of, maybe I haven't thought about this before, but the biblical practice of fasting. Fasting. And by fasting, I mean, you know, intentionally going without food for some period of time in order to pray and to focus on prayer. Uh, in the Bible, you find prayer, well, it's throughout the Bible, but you also find fasting often coupled with prayer. And we talk about prayer, we do prayer, but the thing we kind of selectively don't listen to is fasting. You know, why would someone do that? I mean, we're Americans. We just don't say no to food. I mean, this is our thing. We have so much food to, to choose from. It's, it's wonderful. Fast from food. I mean, I've heard of fast food. I like that. But you know, it's like the goal is to get as much food into me as quickly as I can. You know, you go to the, they have value meals. You don't have to say the name. You just say the number. Like three, you know. Give me the food as quickly as possible. So why would I intentionally fast from food? I mean, we're Baptists. This is part of our theology of the church, is that we eat together. There's going to be a kitchen right there. Like, there's the pass-through window. This will be the kitchen. We're going to eat in this room. So, why would someone possibly fast? It's such a strange thing, I think, to us. And yet, there it is in Scripture. Olden Testaments. And believers in other parts of the world fast. They've learned what fasting is about, but I don't think we really understand it. There's another reason I want to talk about fasting, not only because it's, I think, one of those parts of Scripture we turn a blind eye to, to a little bit, or just don't even understand. Uh, but, but I think another reason I, I want to talk about it is because in a couple of weeks, 
the elders of our church are, are going to be calling this church to like a three-week period of prayer in preparation for Easter and fasting to, to follow that biblical pattern. Um, you know, this is a really exciting time for our congregation. You know, the sanctuary here is filling up. You know, every Sunday I'm meeting new faces. I'm like, why would you possibly want to come here when it's such a mess? But, people, you know, new faces are here. The, the building is going up. Uh, the people are getting pumped up. But I don't know if we're prayed up. Are we prayed up as a church? Are we really looking to God's power to, to do God's work here in this congregation? Um, it, it takes God to do this. The church is fundamentally a spiritual organism. The true church, biblically speaking. It, it's, a, it's a body that's called together by Christ's power People Jesus has saved. The church is a spiritual body. And therefore, it only really grows and strengthens through spiritual means. Through prayer and through the Word of God and through following Jesus and obedience to Him. That's what makes the church the church. But it's very tempting to do the kind of logistical stuff of the church, which needs to be done too. You know, have a place to meet, especially here in New England in the winter. You need a building. You need a space. You know, hiring pastors. I mean, that's exciting stuff. But I guess the question is, are we praying as a church? Are we as a congregation also just saying, Lord, this is Your work. The South Shore needs You. And so we're praying for You to do a mighty work. Are we praying and fasting? So I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. But that's what's kind of motivating this sermon. So I want to think with you about fasting today. I'd like to kind of put Deuteronomy on pause for one Sunday. We'll come back to our sermon series in Deuteronomy next Sunday. But I want to look at this passage in Joel too and reflect on biblical fasting and what it really means and why someone would do it in the first place. So look at Joel 2. And this morning, let me just read verses 12 to 17. Even now, declares the Lord, return to Me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, For He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Well, first things first. The first thing I I want to say is that Joel 2, verses 12 to 17, is not about fasting. (laughs) All right. Just kind of put that on the table. Uh, It talks about fasting, as as we'll see. But I guess what I'm trying to say is the main point of Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, is not a little mini lecture on what fasting is all about. Uh, in, In fact, I was really hard-pressed to find any passage in the Bible that teaches a little mini-lecture on what fasting is all about. I, I can't find a, you know, a chapter of the Bible that's kind of fasting one-on-one. Here's how, here's why, here's what you do. It's more like fasting is just taking place in the Bible. 
You see people doing it. They all seem to understand what they were doing and why they were doing it. But then we come at it from a culture that doesn't really practice it. And, and then we read it and we, we try to understand what's going on. But, so it's one of those things that happens in the Old and New Testaments, but isn't really explained that well. But I think that by understanding kind of the message of Joel 2, 12-17, what it's trying to say, that in light of that, it'll help us understand what, how fasting fits into that. So I, I want to explain fasting, but kind of like in a backdoor sort of way, just to, just to let you know how I'm approaching this whole topic. I, I want to look at what Joel 2 is about and then see how fasting makes sense in light of that and then in light of other places in the Scripture. Because, you know, what, what is it that you're really doing? Why would someone fast? What's it all about? So what then is the main point of Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 17? If you had to summarize the main thrust of this passage, I kind of put it in one little pithy sentence, I, I think the main point of the text in this case is right there in the first verse. Verse 12, Even now declares the Lord, Return to Me, with all your heart. I think that's the main point of this whole section. Return to the Lord. This is a summons, it is a call, an invitation for people to return to God, a people who've wandered away from God. And Joel, the prophet, is speaking on God's behalf saying, come on back. Even now, you can come back and return to the Lord. I mean, what a wonderful message. I love those first two words, my favorite part of this passage. Even now. It's not too late. Even now, you can come back to the Lord from wherever you are, wherever you have been. In the case of Israel, in the original context, they had they'd wandered pretty far. They had worshipped idols. They had abandoned God. They had broken His covenant. They were a people who were straying far from God. And God had sent them prophet after prophet after prophet coming along saying, hello, wake up, time to come back to the Lord. And they, they just kept selectively listening and tuning out the prophets, tuning out what God had to say. And so now God sends Joel and here's Joel saying, hey look, it's not too late. Even now, you can return to God. Uh, and it was an urgent time to return to God because God was about to bring judgment on the nation. You know, if you go back to Joel chapter 2, verses 1-11, to to the passage right before our passage, that's where you see why it's so important that they return to God right now. Okay, so, so there's actually a disaster coming. God is mustering an army that's about to attack the, the people of God because the people of God have rejected their Lord. And so God is bringing judgment in the form of this army. There's a, you know, the, the, uh, the cement truck of God's judgment is bearing down on them and they're just standing there in the road not moving, not returning, not listening. The tsunami warning is sounding. The tsunami is coming, but the people of Israel aren't evacuating. They're not listening to God. Look at the disaster that's coming. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. This is a great judgment that's coming. The day of the Lord. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old nor ever will be in ages to come. There's an army that God is moving against the Israelites. And they're terrifying. Look down at verse 6. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. 
They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. I mean, this is an unstoppable army. No chance of resisting this force. And then, of course, it gets really apocalyptic in verse 10. Before them, the earth shakes. The sky trembles. The sun and moon are dark and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of His army. His forces are beyond number and mighty are those who obey His command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Terrifying message that God is bringing an army of judgment against His people. Now, it's not totally clear in Joel what this army is. It could be sort of a a metaphorical description of a huge locust plague in light of chapter 1. It could be a description of Perhaps some scholars uh, hypothesize the Babylonians who did come to Jerusalem and destroy it. But but it's tough to pinpoint Joel in terms of its date. There's not a lot of clues within the book. And and certainly chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, kind of has echoes of of the ultimate day of the Lord in judgment. There's kind of an apocalyptic looking forward to the final judgment day that's echoed in this. But whatever the case, I think you get the point. These were scary times for Israel. Judgment was coming against them. But then you have this one little wonderful word in verse 12. But even now, even though this is the 11th hour, even though you seem like you're as good as done, seems like your goose is cooked, whatever metaphor you want to use, even now, you can return to Me with all your heart. It's not too late. There's God saying it's not too late. You know what? If you're still breathing, it's not too late. Once we die, Scripture says it's destined man for, once, for man once to die and then to judgment. After we die, it's over. But now in this life, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what your track record is, if you're still you know, taking nourishment, if you're still alive, you can still turn to the Lord and return to Him even now in this last moment. If Israel had a chance then, you have a chance now. So that's the message, is return to God because the times are, are upon them. The, the judgment is at hand. They need to return to Him. And the tone then, so, so you kind of like give the main message. So I'd say the main tone of the passage is one of urgency. You, can you feel that in the text? You know, this is like crisis, desperation. Now's the time. In fact, look at the urgency in verses 15 to 17. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Blow the horns. You know, imagine the, the, the Jewish priest blowing those big ram horns, the shofars. You know, you know, the alarm goes out. It's like when you're a kid in school, the, you know, the fire alarm goes off and everyone has to jump up and go where they have to go. There's an alarm going off in Israel. Time to get everyone together. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Then it says, bring together the elders. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. When it talks about elders there, I think what it's talking about isn't elders like the elders who lead the people, but just more like the elderly. Because notice the contrast between the elders and the children. So it's a way of sort of saying everybody. You know, get the old people, get the little kids. It's going to be the business meeting to end all business meetings. All right? Even the babies need to come to this business meeting and there's no nursery care. Everybody has to be present. Every soul in Israel needs to gather for this assembly because we as a whole group are urgently called together 
to return to God with all of our hearts. He says, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber, which is a bit of a euphemism for basically saying, uh, wedding night festivities are canceled. (laughs) Honeymoon is over. Come back from the honeymoon. It's so important you have to come back now because this is urgent. Verse 17, let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. So even the priests, stop what you're doing, priests. I know you've got a lot of priestly stuff to do. You know, sacrifices and whatever else priests do. Stop it. That goes on hold. Right now, your job, priests, is just to weep and cry out to God, spare your people. This is urgent. So that the main point of the passage is return to God and the tone of the passage is dire urgency. And you know, there's one other thing that, that helps us to understand how urgent it is. You know why else we know this is an urgent command? Because they're called to fast. Fasting is part of the mosaic of urgency that we see here. So you have fasting in verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. So fasting helps communicate the urgency and the intensity. Or down in verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast. So what is a fast? Well, it's, it's intentionally abstaining from food for a certain period so you can pray. But why do we fast? I mean, what's the whole logic behind fasting? And the basic idea is, is that it's a physical expression of urgency, sincerity, intensity in one's turning to God or praying to God or crying out to God. That's, that's the, the basic idea. It's prayer, but with a, a kind of oomph behind it, a, a kind of sincerity and desperation that, that includes fasting. It's like, look, this is so serious, I don't even have time to eat. I'm not even going to eat. There's something more important than eating. Like, what's more important than eating? Now, this is life and death. You know, I, I don't know, have you ever been busy, like some crisis, some thing happened, like you had someone in your family go to the hospital, and you rush off to the hospital, and you meet them in the ER, and you're there, and then it's like you're there for 14 hours at the hospital, then you realize, ooh, I haven't eaten this whole time. I've been so focused on this crisis that, ooh, I've got to eat. You know, it, it's kind of like that, except you're doing it intentionally. You're saying... There's something here of greater importance than me eating. It's a way of saying to God, God, I need you. I need you more than food. God, you are my life. I need you, God. I'm desperate. There's that kind of intensity behind it. Think of fasting this way. Imagine you wrote an email to God. Imagine somehow you got God's email address. I don't know, you you know, ninja'd it from somebody or got it from some whatever. You got his email address. And, uh, and so you wrote this email to God, and in this email to God, you wrote and you poured out kind of the deepest things in your heart that you would say to God if you were completely honest. It's a private email. You know, it would be one of those emails where it would begin, God, I need you. God, I am desperate. God, I have drifted so far from you. I don't even know where you are anymore. I don't know where I am. I, I used to be so close to you, and now I'm here. I don't know how it happened. I want to return to you, but I don't even know how to return. God, I'm so desperate. God, I, uh, I, I'm trapped in an addiction. Lord, I'm trapped in a situation. God, I'm so concerned for, for, for my, my spouse or for my children or for my parents. 
Lord, they, they just don't seem to care about You. You know, and we just pray out this heartfelt prayer to God. God, I have a huge task facing me and I don't know, I don't know what to do. Lord, You've asked me to lead a church with a building project in Hingham and I'm just a guy from Las Vegas. You know, that would be my email. I can't lead this people. What am I supposed to do? God, I need Your help. Imagine just pouring your heart out in an email to God. Just all the things that you would urgently say to Him as you're totally honest. And then if you're about to hit send on the email, you're like, okay, you know when you write a big scary email and you like sit with the, the mouse over the send button for five minutes, like, eh, reread it. So finally, like, I'm going to send this to God and I'm about to hit send. Then you go, wait, wait, wait. I need him to know that how serious I am. So you take your, your mouse and you highlight the whole email and you go up on the text thing and you hit bold. Bold. I'm sending this whole thing in bold. Actually, you know what? This is more serious than bold. Bold and underline. And italics. So now the whole email is bold, underlined, and italics. Then you go, just so God knows how intense I'm feeling about this, I'm going to put the whole thing in 48-point font. So now, now it's like a 10-page email in huge letters. And, and you're thinking, boy, I hope God's not like me. I hope He doesn't delete emails longer than a page. You know, I hope, he, I hope He'll read the whole email. And, so, so you, and then you hit send. Like, okay, God, this is really what I, I want to tell you. That's kind of like what fasting's like. Prayer is like sending an email to God. It's great. You don't need God's email address. You can just talk to Him. It's even better than email. Wherever you are. Even some of you hate computers. That's cool. You know, they're a bit evil, really. So you know, just you don't need you don't need a computer. You can just talk to Him in prayer. Fasting, then, to use this analogy, is like the bold, underlined, italics, increased font size of an email to God. It's a way of saying, God, here I am and I need you. And Lord, I'm really seeking you. It's a way of humbling yourself before God and declaring your dependence upon Him. We have in our country the Declaration of Independence. It's kept in Washington, D.C. underneath you know, special glass that can resist you know, bullets and fire and alien laser beams and all kinds of stuff. And it's kept in especially... Uh, you know, temperature-controlled chamber. And it's our declaration of independence as a nation. Well, fasting is a kind of declaration of dependence. It's where you declare with your body that, that you need God and you need Him's help and you need to know Him more. It's, it's saying, I cannot live on bread alone, but on, I need to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I need, Lord, more than I need food. He is my life. Lord, You're my life. And so it's that kind of expression to Him. So it usually takes place in times of urgency and, and sincerity when people are really seeking the Lord in an intensified kind of way. You know, step back from Joel. Think about some of the different uh, fasting episodes we see in the Old Testament. There's a whole bunch. I'm not going to go through them all, but let me just quickly think with you about four times in the Old Testament outside of Joel that we see fasting. You know, the book of Jonah. Jonah goes and preaches to the Ninevites, these evil, wicked, idolatrous, Assyrians. And he tells them, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Assyrians respond how? Prayer, sackcloth and ashes, and fasting. They all fast. And they say, God, have mercy on us. And repentance, and he does. So fasting can express intense repentance. Or think about uh, another story. Number two, how about the story of Esther? 
You know that story where the edict had gone out throughout the Persian Empire that all the Jews were to be killed on a certain day. And so Esther, the queen, says, I'm going to go to the king unannounced, which could be the death penalty in Persia under Persian law. But she said to the Jews, I want you to pray for me. I want you to fast for three days. And then I'm going to go talk to the king and whatever happens, happens. So so it was a time of crisis and emergency. So fasting could be a time of repentance. It could be a time of crisis. It could be a time of praying for others. Um, There's an interesting psalm. You don't have to turn there. uh, But Psalm 35, where the psalmist uh, is complaining about some people who are out to get him. And he's sort of bringing his complaint to God. And he's like, God, I never did anything bad to them. In fact, the psalmist says, I prayed and fasted for them when they were sick. He says in Psalm 35, Uh, Verse 13, yet when they were ill, when these guys are trying to get me were sick, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. So, you know, I prayed, I fasted. Have you ever fasted for somebody else? You know, sometimes we say, oh, I'm going through a tough time. Would you pray for me? And they go, oh, yeah, I'll be praying for that. Sure. You know, and then we forget promptly. (laughs) Two minutes later, we don't pray for the person. That's why I, I do try to practice this myself is uh, if I have the opportunity and someone says, could you pray for me? I just try to say, can I just pray for you right now? Because I know otherwise, with me, it's like, gone. So I just you know, want to pray for somebody. And I just right there pray for them, pray for God's blessing on them. But, but what if we took it a step further and we said, look, I realize this is a big thing you're going through. So tomorrow, I'm actually going to fast for you. I'm going to fast and pray. And I'm going to get three buddies that we know or three girlfriends or whatever. We're all going to fast and pray for you. Wow, what if, what if we fasted for each other as a church? That's, that's pretty cool. What a thought. So fasting can be repentance. It can be a crisis. It can be praying for others in their crisis. It can be something you do at the beginning of a great venture of faith. Uh, a fourth idea was Ezra from the Old Testament. When he was leading a group of Israelites and Jews back from Persia, from Persia back to the Promised Land after the exile, they were going to go on this long, several hundred mile journey through the desert on these roads. And what did they do before they left? They prayed and they fasted. And they said, God, we're going on a huge venture here. This is a big step of faith. It's a big risk. So would you bless us? And they cried out to the Lord. So fasting is prayer with an intensity behind it that is expressed by abstaining from food, saying, God, I need something. I need you even more than I need food. It's a declaration of dependence upon God. Let, let me just really fast tick off four things fasting isn't. Because I think sometimes it's helpful to understand something by saying what it's not as well as what it is. So four things fasting isn't. Number one, fasting is not an opportunity to impress others with your spirituality. That's not the point of fasting. It's not to be some kind of super Christian and say, well, look, I, I fast. I mean, that's, that's not the point. In fact, if you look back at Joel 2, look at verse 13. Isn't it interesting? He says, rend your heart and not your garments. So, rending your garments. In, in that culture, to express intense emotion, you sometimes rip your clothes off. You're like, ah! You know, and, and that was a way of publicly expressing sorrow or anger or whatever. You, you could do that. Uh, so, so they rend their garments. Um, but it's interesting, he says, don't do that. So do one thing that's an outward expression of intensity, which is fasting, but don't do another thing, which is tearing your clothes. So, so there's kind of a sense here that, that God's saying, don't let this be an outward show. Let your heart really be in this. 
In other words, the point of this is not to put on a show or to do some ritual. We've all grown up, probably a lot of us, I should say all, but a lot of us have grown up with religious experiences that were just rituals and performances but really weren't part of knowing God. And that doesn't do anything for God. He, he was looking at the heart. So don't just do this because you're supposed to do this because this is what people do. Do it because it's coming out of your heart. Don't do this to impress people. When Jesus taught on fasting, He said, when you fast, do not do it like the Pharisees and the hypocrites. Don't, don't go around looking like, oh, you know, what's wrong with you? Oh, I'm fasting. You know, so having a tough day, I'm fasting. You know, trying to impress people with fasting. Oh, but take a shower. You know, chew some breath mints because that's a problem with fasting. And, uh, you know, put on deodorant and, and look nice and walk around. And don't let people know you're fasting because it's not about impressing people. Number two, fasting is not about impressing God. God's not impressed. The only thing God's impressed by is, is us crying out to Him in faith. But we can't do anything to impress God. We, we can't spiff ourselves up. It, it's not like fasting is, you know, now you're going from being a level one Christian to a level two Christian. You know, now you're like plus two spirituality or something. It's not, you know, it's not a game like that. It's, it's just calling out to God in dependence. If anything, fasting is saying, God, I lack, not God, I have and I lack and I need something from you. you th think about what the priests pray at the end of verse 17. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? In other words, the priest's real concern is for God's glory, not their glory. Number three, fasting is not a formula. Oftentimes, when you hear or read books on fasting, you get the idea that fasting is kind of a formula. If X, then Y. If you fast, then God will do this. You know, as if God's some kind of algorithm or, or a vending machine. You put the right coinage in, you can press the button to get what you want. God's not a vending machine. God is God. That's the whole point. He's sovereign. Even in His mercy, He's sovereign. You know, look at verse uh, 14 of, of Joel, chapter 2. He goes, who knows? Let's pray and fast because who knows? We don't know. He may turn and have pity. It's not a promise. It's, it's not... So you don't want to turn fasting into a kind of Christian form of magic. Where if you do the incantation the right way, well then God has to do that. Hey God, we had a solemn assembly and we fasted for three weeks and, and therefore you have to. It doesn't necessarily work that way. But it's He may. He is gracious and compassionate. And then finally, here's the fourth one, is that fasting is not just an Old Testament thing. It's in the New Testament too. Jesus said, when you fast fast this way, assuming we're going to fast. Uh, when Jesus was here on earth, it's interesting that His disciples did not fast. And so He was called on that one. Some people came to Him in the Gospels and they said, how come you don't fast? I mean, the disciples of the Pharisees fast. The disciples of John the Baptist fast. But Jesus, your disciples don't fast. What's up with that? And, and He said, look, I'm here. When the groom is with them, why are they going to fast? The party's on. But Jesus said, one day I'm not going to be here. And He said, on that day... They will fast. And so it's, fasting is part of New Testament practice as well. And sure enough, you look in the book of Acts, you look at the early church, they were fasting. In Acts chapter 13, the, 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 the church met in Antioch and they got together and they fasted and prayed. And they said, God, what do you want us to do? They were seeking His will. And God answered. God said, set apart Paul and Barnabas as missionaries to the Gentiles. And so what did the church do? They set them apart by, you can guess, Fasting and prayer. So, so even then, the, the church was sending them off on a, on a great sort of mission. And it was 
in dependence upon God's power. And I feel like in some ways that's where our church is at. These are exciting times. We, uh, this building is going up. We're taking a big venture of faith. This is really exciting. God is doing things in our midst. People are coming to know the Lord. Um, and we're even looking beyond the building. We'd love to see us plant some new churches, start some daughter churches. We'd love to see our church be kind of a, like a teaching hospital for new pastors where they can be trained in the ministry. I mean, just lots of things we'd love to see the Lord do. And, uh, and we need His help. This is a big venture of faith. And so I think if ever there was a time in our church's history to fast and pray, this is one of those moments where we really need to seek Him. Uh, there's a great need on the South Shore. Uh, New England and, and Massachusetts is, is the lowest church attendance in the country. Um, and of those, of those who go to church, you know, the number that would go to, say, a Bible teaching church is like 2%. I mean, we're almost like an unreached people group here in New England. You know? It's amazing how, how far we've come since the pilgrims and the Puritans landed here. And the name of Jesus was known throughout the land. And now Jesus is just, you know, a, a byword and a swear. We've come a long ways downhill from there. And so we need to pray for God to work again. And we need to fast and we need to pray. And so we're, that's what we're calling the church to do. Uh, and like I said, a couple of weeks from now, we're going to have a, a three-week period of fasting and prayer as a church. Basically, this is how it's going to work. The prayer part is uh, every week, Starting April 3rd, we're going to give you guys a, a one-week prayer guide with just different things to pray for each day. You can pray for it on your own. You can pray with your Bible study. You can pray with your friends, however you pray. Get together, pray for these things. Just all kinds of different needs we have and as a church, as individuals. And, and so we'll do that for three weeks. Every week we'll give you a new prayer guide. And then the fasting part is, this is what I want you to think about. I just want us to try it. I, I want to challenge you to pick one day during the week, like look at your schedule, figure out what your best day for this is, and say this is going to be my day, like Thursdays. So every Thursday for three weeks, I'm going to fast. All right. And I know not everyone can do that. Some of you have medical conditions. You know, if you're diabetic, obviously that is a no-no. Uh, some of us have other health issues that prevent us from fasting. But I think the majority of us actually can. And this is what I encourage you to do, is fast. Don't do one of those little weird substitute fasts. You know, people say, well, I think I'm going to fast from TV today. You know, well, maybe you should, <laughs> but then do a real fast too. Like, like instead of doing these kind of weird substitute things, like, like just, just try fasting, you know, which means like, at least for me, as I interpret it, it means I don't eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, and I drink water. And then the next breakfast, I'm really hungry and I usually eat more, but, um, you know, just try it. And when you're hungry, and when you're sitting there at 3 in the afternoon going, why in the world am I doing this? Just say, because there's something more important than food right now. I need God. Our church needs God. My family needs Jesus. The South Shore needs the Lord. That's why I'm doing this. And let those greater spiritual needs propel you forward. You know, it's uncomfortable, and we as Americans aren't used to not being comfortable. That's a weird sensation for us, but... We need to find out you know, whether or not the Lord can answer. We need to seek Him. So that, that's what I'm proposing for us to do. And you know, the great thing is it's not too late. It's not too late to do this because even now, even though the building is going to be opening in a couple months, even now, declares the Lord, return to me. It's, not, it's never too late to return to the Lord. You know, even now, 
Even if you're like the Israelites, maybe you read the Israelite story and you're like, that's me. I, I've gone so far from God. I've wandered from Him. I haven't been following. God is telling you this morning, even now, even now you can come back. You're not too far from God's grace. If you're still alive, there's still time to seek the Lord and to turn to Christ. Maybe you are you know, struck, stuck in uh, an addiction or a situation or a behavior that you can't break. And you've tried all these different things. You're like, yeah, this has been going on all these years. What's the point? I'm just, just who I am. And it's like, have you ever fasted and prayed? Have you ever tried that? And you've gone to your groups. You've gone to counseling and all these different things. Have you ever just fasted and prayed? You know, if, if you're wrestling with addiction, like take a week and don't eat and pray. Like a week? Look, the human body, unless you have a medical condition, can go a month without eating no problemo, you know, in most cases. And go talk to your doctor, obviously. But, you know, the human body can handle that. You, you, can, you can be alive. You might feel a little woozy sometimes, but you can feel alive. You, you can go. You know, my point is, isn't it just the case that when crises come up, when situations arise, when we face challenges as a church, when we're going on a new ministry venture, you, you know, we, we have something we're facing, what, what do we do? We instantly go to our solutions instead of calling out to the Lord. We, we hit a new sort of ministry opportunity or challenge as a church. And what do we do as a church? What's step one? Form a committee. Develop a five-year strategic action plan. Develop metrics. Implement five-year strategic action plan. And that's good. I like plans. I like committees. I like teams. I like people solving things. It's great. But what if our first step was prayer, fasting? Let's seek the Lord. What would he show us? Maybe he has a plan for us to implement. We just never took the time to ask him what it was. Because <laughs> we were too busy, like, you know, cranking out our plans. Ooh, I got an idea. And I heard this at this other church. And we could try this. And my business did this once. And, like, what about God? Let's ask the Lord through fasting and prayer. And no matter who you are, it's never too late to turn to God. You know, have you ever personally, yourself, Turn to Jesus Christ as your Savior. Have you ever personally cried out to Him? Um, you know, Jesus died on the cross. He paid for sinners' sins on the cross by shedding His blood. He was buried. He rose again. And now anybody, no matter the background, no matter the history, no matter the, the rap sheet, can come to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Even now, even now, it's not too late. And even now, we need to be crying out for people we love, people we're concerned about. You know, there's a, an elder in our church who um, who has really, really gotten into fasting and praying, and he's really been challenging us as elders to fast more. And uh, it's cool, you know, how he, how he figured out how he got into fasting was uh, basically he had a kid that was kind of going off course. And uh, so he and his wife started praying regularly for this kid. And the kid was still going off course. So he said, you know, I, I'm so desperate I'm going to start fasting and praying. And that was how he sort of got into fasting and praying. You know, have we ever thought about for the people we love, people we're concerned about for their souls, to fast and to pray for their souls? You know, to join the Lord Jesus who suffered to save sinners, to join Him in His suffering in a sense by praying and, and putting aside our needs to con be concerned for the welfare of others. Brothers and sisters, we have not even yet begun to pray. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank You that You are the living God. We thank You that You're compassionate. We thank You that You have solutions and power beyond our imagination. And God, we pray that You would teach us as a church and as individuals how to be more dependent upon You and less dependent upon ourselves. God, give us humility as a church. Help us not to trust in our own efforts, our own solutions. Help us not to trust in money or plans or strategies or or pastors, Lord, but help us to trust in You and Your power. God, I pray that You would prepare our hearts as a church, not just for Easter and not just for a week of fasting and prayer, but Lord, prepare our hearts for this new building and for the opportunities that You have for us here on the South Shore. God, we put it all in Your hands. It all depends on You. And so do we. We depend upon You. And so, Lord, bless us. Work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.